Welcome to the Social Work Social. My name is Melanie Matthews and I'm a registered social worker. Together, we're gonna to be exploring the world of mental health treatment by listening to stories and having conversations with a diverse group of social workers. And you're gonna to have to listen to me quite a bit too. Before we get started, there are two disclaimers about this podcast. The first one is, the information presented here should only be considered completely accurate for Ontario, Canada. There are different rules and regulations for mental health professionals, including social workers, in other parts of Canada and the rest of the world. So make sure you're doing your research to be sure that you know about the regulations specific to your area. The second disclaimer is that nothing presented here should be considered mental health treatment or medical advice. If you're interested in learning more or perhaps getting some of this treatment for yourself, make sure to consult an expert in your area. Your family doctor is usually a good place to start. Today we're going to talk about a concept called intersectionality. Intersectionality is a pretty broad topic and can get complicated by a lot of other really technical social science concepts. For this episode, we're going to focus in only on intersectionality in order to get an in-depth understanding of this topic and try to avoid other confusing and complicated concepts and terms. There's no trigger warning for this episode. So what is intersectionality? The concept of intersectionality understands that there are various forms of oppression that a person can experience and that these things can intersect and actually compound one another. When thinking about oppression, consider all the isms such as racism, ageism, and sexism. People can experience oppression through discrimination, harassment, and less opportunities for things like employments because of these isms. There are also other aspects of a person's identity that can be applied to this concept, like the language that a person speaks or their religious beliefs. Generally speaking, people who have an identity that falls into the dominant group are considered privileged as they're more likely to receive benefits from society. People from marginalized groups are generally considered to be oppressed and are more likely to experience barriers to success. The most obvious example of this is race. The dominant group in this case would be people who are white, because in Canada, white people are considered the norm and they experience benefits because of that. People from other racial groups are considered to be the marginalized group and they experience oppression. When we think about how different aspects of identity can intersect and compound, the easiest way to imagine that is that people who have multiple aspects of their identity that fall into the marginalized category, the more oppression they will experience. It's important to note here that we're talking about groups in really general terms. Many individuals who belong to these groups may have unique factors that make them have experiences outside of the norm. Some people in marginalized groups also simply don't see themselves as being oppressed because they value that aspect of their identity and do not acknowledge it as a disadvantage. Intersectionality as a concept makes assumptions about groups, but all people are individuals and have unique experiences. On that note, each unique individual's identity can cause that person to be both privileged and oppressed because of the complex ways that different aspects of their identity intersect. Let's use me as an example to understand this concept better. I'm a 29-year-old white woman. I'm cisgendered and heterosexual and married to a man. I live with a traumatic brain injury and a seizure disorder, which is considered an invisible disability. I have a graduate level of university education and a job that uses that education. Not exactly rolling in cash, but I can pay my rent every month and still be able to afford to eat and buy my medication. That's saying something when you consider that I live in Toronto, 
the second most expensive city in Canada, only behind Vancouver in terms of rent prices. In many ways, I'm very privileged. I'm white, which makes me a part of the dominant group in Canada, so I've never been discriminated against because of my race. I also have a high level of education, which gives me a lot of advantages in terms of the way other people view me and my opportunities for employment. And on the topic of employment, the fact that I have any employment at all is a huge advantage right now, considering many people are out of work in 2020. And then in other ways, I experience oppression. I'm a woman, which means I've been demeaned, harassed, and looked down upon because of my gender. If you follow me on Instagram or Facebook, you may have also noticed that I'm pretty heavily tattooed. In particular, I have a tattoo on my neck that can't be covered up unless I'm wearing a very high turtleneck. Since many people have negative impressions of tattoos, I've definitely gotten some comments about how unprofessional it is and have been required to cover them at a job I had in the past. There's also at least one job I interviewed for that I'm pretty sure I didn't get because of the tattoos, which is totally illegal, but it definitely still happens. And then in other ways, the question of privilege and oppression gets a little bit more complicated based on context. As I said, I'm a woman, and I've experienced disadvantage due to sexism. However, as a white female social worker, I'm actually in the majority in my occupation. Being in the majority means I'm automatically accepted in my position, and I hold some authority. My male colleagues have told me that they are often questioned about their motivations to be in social work, and are regarded with some suspicion if they want to work with children, as caregiving for children is seen as a woman's role. If you would like to understand yourself better from an intersectional standpoint, the Power Flower exercise is a great activity to try yourself. You can find templates and instructions online. There are a few variations of this exercise, but the basic concept is the same. The exercise involves looking at a picture of a flower with an inside circle of petals, then a circle of petals in the middle, and another full circle beyond that on the outside. You then fill in the flower petals with different aspects of your identity. Some of those aspects may be visible to others, such as your appearance, your gender expression, your race, the language you speak, your height and weight, and your age. Others may be less visible unless you choose to share them, like your sexual orientation or your culture and religion, your employment status and salary, your level of education, physical and mental health, learning ability, citizenship, birthplace, and family status. Aspects of your identity that you feel are the most relevant can be placed closer to the center of the flower, and ones that you don't identify strongly with will go closer to the outside. Once your flower is filled in, reflect on the areas of privilege and oppression in your identity. You might be surprised by what you find. If you have a friend who's comfortable sharing, compare your power flowers to see how you experience the world differently. This exercise is not meant to be a competition to see who has it better or worse. Rather, it's meant to help facilitate understanding and conversations about how different aspects of different people's identities can cause them to experience privilege and oppression. We often take for granted that people in our life have the same experience that we do, and it's helpful to have conversations about how that might not be the case. Through that conversation, you can learn to support one another better. But what does intersectionality have to do with mental health? Mental health is shaped by a person's social, physical, and economic environments. Social inequalities can increase the risk of developing a mental health issue. Certain populations or groups have a higher risk of mental health issues due to these factors and inequalities. This means that oppression has a huge impact on experiences with mental health. 
If you remember episode four, where we talked about holistic support, that concept links really well with intersectionality because it acknowledges that there are many aspects of a person's life where they need support in order to improve their mental health. It's also important to note that mental health treatment can be extremely expensive. A person who's experiencing oppression may not have the financial means to receive support for their mental health. For example, let's consider a person who may not have the advantages I do, and they don't have a high level of education that allows them to find a full-time job that pays well. Maybe that person is now working a minimum wage job and can't afford to pay for a therapist, even though they might need mental health support due to the stress of living in poverty and working a really high-stress job. I worked at Tim Hortons before going to university, and I can say with confidence that my minimum wage paying fast food job was at times just as stressful as my current social work job, but with far less financial compensation. I could have really used some mental health support at that time, but I was more concerned with being able to pay my rent and buy food, so I didn't see a therapist until years later. A person who's facing more sites of oppression than I did would likely need even more support than I did. This might all seem very confusing, especially if you've never had to consider the ways in which your identity makes you privileged. I know I struggled a lot with understanding intersectionality when I first learned about it in my third year of university, especially because that lesson focused heavily on race. I'd never had to consider my race before because, as a white person, race didn't have a huge impact on my life from my perspective. It was also difficult to accept an identity that labeled me as privileged because I've experienced so much oppression in my life as someone who's experienced homelessness and addiction. The biggest thing I found helpful was to remember that just because I experienced some privilege, my feelings about being oppressed are still valid. Every person has a different life experience and all of our feelings are valid. It's still important to acknowledge all sites of oppression and strive to oppose things like racism, sexism, and all of those other isms. We really just scratched the surface of what intersectionality means in this episode, but I hope this gave you some food for thought and you might start noticing how identity can have an impact on how a person experiences the world and their mental health. Next week, we're going to have our fourth interview of this series with Melissa. Melissa has worked in a few different social work practice areas. She's going to tell us about what she experienced when working in a hospital and in a school. She's also going to tell us about how her identity impacts her work as a social worker. By sharing information and stories, The Social Work Social hopes to inspire you to take action to reduce the stigma of mental health and help normalize seeking mental health treatment. Over the next week, consider what you can do to help. There are so many things you can do based on your strengths, skills, and comfort. Look up mental health initiatives in your area and see if there are any volunteer opportunities. Or maybe take a mental health first aid or suicide intervention course. Even just a kind social media post or an encouraging word to someone struggling with their mental health can make a huge difference to that person. Thank you for listening to The Social Work Social. Tune in again next Friday for another episode. Thank you to Taking It Global, the Government of Canada, and the Canada Service Corps for generously supporting this project. If you have a simple project idea to support your community, Taking It Global is looking to support youth who are inspired with ideas and ready to take action through their youth-led community service grants. Apply for a Rising Youth grant today at risingyouth.ca.